This is Josh Porter, and you're listening to the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, More of the Holy Spirit. One of the last and most important things Jesus said to his disciples was that he would be with them always. But how exactly? Understanding the answer to this question is foundational to our understanding of the Holy Spirit, who he is, and what he does. I have been hanging around with other folks uh, at Van City Church long before we even had a Sunday gathering talking about what this whole thing might be like and, and what it might be like in the years to come. Before we were meeting on Sundays, before we did our prayer meetings at the Vineyard, which a few of you guys were around for, um, before there was like a formal announcement at Bridgetown, the church that planted us, we got on stage, we're like, hey, we're planting a church in Vancouver and all that. Before any of that, Scott, who's one of our elders, and myself, we met really early one morning, and we sat down in a room, and we asked each other, so if we did plant a church, at this point it was a hypothetical, it was an invitation, an idea, if we did plant a church, what would it be like? If we do this, what should we prioritize, and what will our values be, and how will we express those values? And we started to write things on a whiteboard, that would likely come as little surprise to anyone who's ever been to one of our gatherings. We wrote things like the Bible. That was like right at the top of the list. The Bible, the authority of the scriptures, that we said will be foundational if we plant a church, theology, academia, all that kind of thing. And we wrote right under that community, which probably doesn't surprise you guys. We wrote things like music and worship and creativity. And there on that whiteboard, in big black letters, we wrote the Holy Spirit, which may seem weird because uh, the Holy Spirit is just another way of writing God. If you're planting a church in the Christian tradition, God as a value seems kind of like a given, but the Orthodox historic Christian tradition has always held that there is one God, but he somehow exists in three unique persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the, the Holy Spirit, right? The thing is, most of us get, at least to some extent, um, God the Father. He's the one m- most people's minds move toward when we talk about God. Most of us get God the Son, maybe even a little bit easier than God the Father. Jesus of Nazareth, he's a man, flesh and blood, he, who was also God. We have biographies of his life, we have stories and sayings that are known the world over by people who do and do not claim faith in the Son. So we get the idea of him at least a little bit. But then, when it comes to God the Holy Spirit, we often arrive at a fog in our imagination. Who is he? What does he do? And how does he do it? Some people hear Holy Spirit and they immediately think of bad things. They think of charismatic hysterics and like flags waving around and people yelling gibberish or falling on the ground or something like that. Others know the Holy Spirit only from his obligatory placement in the Trinity. In, in the Trinity, he, he goes in there. We get that, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But beyond that, we're kind of at a loss. So knowing all that and wanting badly to be a church that would work to lift that fog, we wrote on that whiteboard, the Holy Spirit. So it's not an exaggeration to say this series has been years in the making. And over the years, we've talked again and again. Is a time yet, is a time yet, planting seeds and 
um, broaching topics, opening conversations. And now we think it's time to dive in. Now, last week we offered what we think is a good working definition of the Holy Spirit coined by a scholar called Gordon Fee. He said the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. Or put another way, the Spirit is God's person, God's power, and God's presence. So, first, the Holy Spirit is God's person. We, begin, we began this whole series and this whole conversation by acknowledging that lots of people who follow Jesus, well-meaning people, when they think of the Holy Spirit, they imagine the Spirit as an abstract force. But for Jesus and the authors of Scripture, the Spirit is not a concept. He's not a symbol. He's not a force. The Spirit is a person. But the Spirit is also God's power. Now, last week, we talked about the way that Jesus was able to perform miracles, if you know the stories of his life. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cast out demons, all kinds of crazy stuff. And he did all that not because he was God, per se, but because he was a human being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Which is exactly why, as the story carries on, we see Jesus' apprentices, his closest friends, and new apprentices who never met Jesus proper, but um, came to follow him later in life. They all go on to perform miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and everything on the list. Because Jesus was the prototype for all of his followers. Just as he was empowered by God's Spirit to do miracles, so too can all of Jesus' followers be empowered by the same Spirit to do the very same things. Now tonight, I want to get into the idea of the Spirit as God's presence. So with that, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Last week, we had a lot of ground to cover, so I had you guys flipping all through your Bibles all night, Uh, but tonight... You'll do even more of it, so get excited. Lots of work to do. You guys feeling sharp? You're right? Great. Awesome. If you're new to the Bible, Exodus is just the second book in right after Genesis. Many uh, think of the Bible as this enormous ancient scrapbook of cobbled together rules and weird history, but the Bible is actually primarily a story. It's one story, and that story begins and ends with a picture of God with his people. If you know the opening sequence in Genesis, you have Adam and and Eve in the garden, all that stuff, and you read in that story that God would, and I quote, walk in the garden in the cool of day. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, to be honest, but whatever it means, in the specific sense anyway, everyone agrees that the author of Genesis means to depict a world in which there is no barrier between God and human beings. Then, much later, at the conclusion of the Bible story, the climax of the revelation, we read this amazing, beautiful glimpse into a world made new all over again, and you read this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. All that to say the Bible begins and ends depicting God with his people, but between the beginning and the end, you have the middle, a big, long middle. We're still in the dang thing, technically. And in the middle, the idea of God being with his people doesn't work like it did in the garden, and it doesn't work like it will at the end, what we call the renewal of all things. So if you know the story, things go awry, spoiler alert. In the garden story, when faced with a decision between God in charge or themselves in charge, humanity chooses themselves and are thus put out of God's presence which is a really weird concept. After all, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. There's nowhere that God is not. 
But what it means in the story for Adam and Eve to be shut out of God's presence is that there has been a compromise in their experience of God's nearness. In theology, we call that God's manifest presence. When the heaviness of God's closeness is palpable, when you feel it just a few minutes ago in worship. Many of you know that sensation well enough. But post-Genesis 3, after the fall, God's manifest presence, his undeniable nearness, is now the exception to the rule. We don't experience God's palpable nearness all the time. We experience it sometimes. We are born at a distance from God. His felt closeness is not our default experience. Now, all of that reads as a big bummer, but the good news is that really the entire story of the Bible itself is a story about the lengths to which God will go to repair that breach and to restore the normalcy of his manifest presence. The Bible is the story about a God who designs an order in which he might be with his beloved, which is people, but God's love is unrequited. We don't want God. Well, we do and we don't. We're like toddlers. We want God when it works for us, but we don't want him when we don't, and we have no freaking idea of the implications of either thing, and we despair without God, but then we thrash against his arms when he tries to hold us, and we make an awful mess of everything, and then we look up and shout at God, why'd you make a mess of everything? And, and when God intervenes to save us, we scream, no, and run away. That's kind of how the story goes in a nutshell. But if we are the belligerent toddlers in the story... God is the benevolent Father who stops at nothing to rescue us, to love us, to restore a world in which he is truly with his beloved. So let me show you. We're going to take a, a quick tour through the scriptures, stopping at these major landmarks along the way. Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, the temple, exile, Jesus, the spirit, the church, and the body. So... We begin in Exodus 19. Look alive. Let's read beginning with verse 9. It says, Yahweh said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear, hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Let's skip down. A bunch of stuff happens. Skip down to verse 16. Things get really crazy. It says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Verse 18 says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because Yahweh descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Him. Yahweh descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. And the story goes on from there. In it, God comes to Israel in true spectacle. There's fire and smoke and thunder, lightning and earthquake. There's a trumpet for some reason. And all of it is terrifying. Israel won't even go up there. Moses has to go by himself. But then, turn just a few pages to the right to Exodus 25. This is not long after the story of Mount Sinai. We read about something called the tabernacle. Look at Exodus 25, verse 8. It says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, God says, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle, which is a word that means something like a tent, and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, 
That seems like a, a weird excerpt to zero in on, I know. But this is actually a huge deal in context. In the ancient world, gods were understood to be uh, spatially located. So there was like a god of a certain mountain or a god of the sea or a god of the forest. And into that worldview is written Exodus, in which Yahweh, who's the one true creator god, is not relegated to a certain mountain or a certain river. He's the god over all things, but... What this very big God wants is to go with his people as they wander around. And he wants to be in a tabernacle of all things or in a tent. He wants to go camping with Israel wherever they go. And so from here on, Exodus becomes this detailed instruction manual for how to build this tent. Yahweh will go on to inhabit. It's really fascinating stuff. It, it showcases Yahweh's concern for artistry and God's aesthetic, which is really fascinating, his value for creative craftsmanship. It's all there. Then turn over to Exodus 40. Let's read how this book concludes. Exodus 40, skip down to verse 34. It ends this way. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. So it's no longer on Sinai. Now the cloud is down in the camp with Israel. And the glory of Yahweh, here meaning God's presence and God's beauty, it filled the tabernacle. It filled up the tent. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Now, we're going to fast forward a few hundred years to 1 Kings chapter 8. Go ahead and turn over there, 1 Kings chapter 8, no shame in consulting the table of contents. Israel, at this point in the story, is now long out of the desert. They're living in Canaan, where the capital city is Jerusalem. And here, in 1 Kings 8, there's a new kind of tabernacle, but now it's called a temple, and it stays in one place as Israel is no longer wandering around in the desert. So let's read 1 Kings 8, beginning with verse 10. It says, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud, there it is again, filled the temple of the, of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled his temple. Then Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So God's presence, and the story was on Sinai. It was on top of the mountain with the spectacle and everything. And then it comes down the same way into the, into the camp and into the tabernacle. But now it's in a building. It's in the temple. And this is at a high point in Israel's story. Big ceremony. There's opening up the temple. Yahweh's glory actually comes in and inhabits it. Really amazing stuff. The thing is, as amazing as all of that was, this glory was only really available to a select few and in a select way. The rule was that only one male priest could enter the area called the Holy of Holies in the temple, and then only once a year on a day called Yom Kippur. It was a whole thing. The high priest wore a rope around his leg, not his waist, <laughs> that I just pantomime. Oh, man, people listening on the podcast didn't know I did it wrong. I messed it up. Now they all know. The high priest wore a rope around his leg so that if he died in there from the sheer magnitude of his experience in the Holy of Holies, God's presence, the other guys could pull his corpse out by the rope without dying themselves, which would be a huge drag. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, that was the one time in the history of this church that my anticipation for the joke was as big as, the reaction was as big as my anticipation. Thank you. It was a big night for me. Thank you. But <laughs> point is, 
when they open up the temple and God's presence come in, comes in, this is a celebratory landmark in Israel's history. God's presence is coming into the temple, but access to the presence, even though it's amazing, it's a beautiful thing, it's severely restricted, and even that doesn't last. Israel rebels again and again and again against Yahweh. They worship other gods, and after centuries of patience, Yahweh allows Israel's sin to compound on itself and they're invaded by Babylon and sent into exile. Even the temple is eventually destroyed. That's where we're going next. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10. Again, no shame in the table of contents. Um, I had an in- Here's a sidebar while you guys turn there. I had an interesting conversation yesterday about mug holding. So <laughs> I didn't plan this, so we'll see where it goes. Someone asks me, they ask me, Heather asks me, she says, when you pick up your mug, how do you do it? And I says, like this, you know, with, does this look unusual to anyone? Can you see it? And then she's like, oh my God, you guys are freaks, you know, talking to my wife, Abby, and me. I'm like, well, what's wrong with this? She's like, no, like this. What, am I doing it wrong? Oh, like this? Are y'all not drinking a hot beverage in your mug? How are you holding on to like that? Kevin, does this look normal to you? Would you hold it like this? That's a safety hazard, exactly right. Thank you, thank you. I'm not consulting anyone else because I found what I wanted from this gentleman over here. Thanks, Kevin. All right, Ezekiel 10. This is a few hundred years after our last story. Lots of time has gone by. Israel is long gone from their home. Jerusalem is a wasteland. And then we read this in verse 18. It says, Then the glory of Yahweh departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped over the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings, rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of Yahweh's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. Now, I realize there's a lot of weird stuff there, but notice this. Each story we read in route to this one was about Yahweh's presence entering or arriving. But this story is about God's presence doing what? It's departing. It's leaving. This is a haunting scene. And from this point on, the story goes, God's presence is gone. It's not in the temple, obviously. It's not in Jerusalem at all, nor is it up a mountain, nor is it in a tent. It's gone. But turn a few pages into Ezekiel to chapter 37. This is a really beautiful thing. It's worth it, trust me. In this story, time marches on. Ezekiel and the other prophets, they begin to look forward to a day in the future when God's Spirit would come back. And this particular passage we're about to read, Ezekiel 37, is one of the prophet's visions of a dry valley, and it's littered with sun-bleached skeletons. It's a metaphor for the desolation of Israel. And we read in Ezekiel 37, verse 11, this. Then God said to me, son of man, here this is God referring to the prophet as a human or son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what sovereign Yahweh says, my people I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put, listen, my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. Skip down to verse 27. My dwelling place will be with them. 
I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, Yahweh, make Israel holy, set apart, dedicated to God, when my sanctuary is among them forever. So in this vivid picture, the prophet learns not only that Israel will one day return to the land, which is great news because they've been exiled at this point, but better still, one day the presence of God himself will return to Israel. But there's more. When God returns to Israel, he is going to put his very spirit in his people. Now, at this point in the story, this is absolutely unheard of. God's Spirit, the one that hovered over the waters in creation at the very beginning of the story, it shows up in noteworthy moments and scenes. It shows up over a king or a prophet or a noteworthy individual from time to time, but that's rare and unique, and it only lasts for a little while. Maybe the Spirit, God's presence, would show up in a cloud or on a mountain or the Holy of Holies, sure, restricted access. But here, Ezekiel says, one day in the future, God's Spirit would be in his people, all of them, which brings us to the New Testament. So turn over to John chapter 1. It's the fourth of the Gospels, John chapter 1. You guys still with me? You're all right? Great, thank you. You're doing great, I'm sure. We're almost there. Hang in there, just a few more. Now, between the exile, which is the last thing we read, and Jesus, which we're about to read, you've got about 400 years or so, long time. In that stretch, the temple was destroyed and then rebuilt, but there is zero indication that God's presence has returned to the temple. So it's a really somber picture. The Jewish people are back in the land. Temple has been rebuilt, but it is empty as far as God's presence goes. He is not there. Thus, the people of Israel are still waiting for Ezekiel's vision to come to fulfillment. And then it does, but not in the way that anyone was expecting. Let's read John chapter 1, beginning with verse 14. This is a classic passage. It says, The Word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. Now that word dwelling is skaneo in Greek, and it literally means tabernacle or tent. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And the verse goes on. We have seen his glory. There's more of that language from Exodus. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is evoking the exact same imagery we've been reading, glory of God, cloud on the mountain in the camp and all that. Only now, all that same power and glory is in Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we're almost done. Turn one book to the right to Acts chapter 2. We're now just a few weeks after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus has returned to the Father. A relatively small group of his followers are now in Jerusalem, and they're waiting for something that Jesus said would happen. It's going to be huge. And then in all that, we read this in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, all the apprentices of Jesus. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. More of that imagery from the Old Testament. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. So now in the story, the spirit is not relegated to a mountain or a tent or a temple or even to Jesus only. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. For the first time in the history of the cosmos, 
this has happened. And because of it, everything changes. Before we stop, let me just show you one. Turn one more time, a couple of books to the right, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you do, if you do it, you win. If you, <laughs> if you go to all the Bible passages, you win. This is several years after that story in Acts. So the movement of Jesus is now spreading throughout the ancient Mediterranean. You've got the people who knew Jesus closely, his close friends. But now you've got new disciples of Jesus who had never met Jesus personally. And they've come to faith and are following him. And one apprentice of Jesus called Paul writes a letter to a church uh, of Jesus followers in a city called Corinth. And he writes this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Listen to his language. Don't you know, this is him writing to other followers of Jesus, you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So the temple lives on, but the temple is now all followers of Jesus, you and me. And for many of us, that whole idea of, you know, like body as a temple language is familiar enough. It's kind of made it into the common vernacular. But hopefully, with all of that context, I realize that was a lot, we can now see the magnitude of the idea that wild, powerful, thunder and lightning, fire on the mountain, presence of God that was once localized on a mountain or in a tent or a temple and in Jesus himself is now where? with us, in us, and together, we are the church, which is this, by the way. You've likely heard popular expressions about things like, oh, the church is a people, not a building, or people, not a place, whatever, which is absolutely true. But where those expressions are, I think, uh, a little misleading is that they are most often used to beat up on what we're doing right now, which is the whole thing of like, hey, man, I don't, <laughs> this is the voice I imagine, I don't need to come to Sunday gathering because church is a people, not a building, man. And the problem with that <laughs> is that for more than 2,000 years, disciples of Jesus the world over have come together in regular rhythms to do everything that we do tonight, worship, study, eat and drink, take communion. Paul's language here is plural. You together are that temple. Something special, in other words, happens when we get together like this, when you get together in your community throughout the week. It may not always seem that way, but we are a collected vessel of God's indwelling presence. But it's not true of the church only, not true of groups only. Later in this same letter, Paul has to correct this church in Corinth for all kinds of really kooky sexual immorality. And listen to the logic he employs to explain himself. He says this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Now the you here is singular. Your body in the individual sense is a temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning you are the place where God is. So the story of the Bible unfolds this way. God is with his people in intimate closeness, but we sabotage that intimacy and we're put out of God's presence. But God refuses to let the story end that way. His presence comes to his people on Mount Sinai, but then even closer in the tabernacle and in the temple, but the presence is restricted, limited. And humanity remains desperate to force God away, unfaithful, worshiping other gods, refusing God's love, so God's presence leaves. 
But remember, this is a story about God's relentless pursuit of his beloved. So God's presence comes back just as he promised it would, this time in Jesus of Nazareth. And because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the Spirit finally, after millennia of waiting, arrives this time in each and every one of us, just as Yahweh said, I will put my Spirit in you. But that is still not the end of the story. The end of the story is on a coming day, the renewal of all things, when God's intimate and undeniable presence is once again over every square inch of the entire cosmos, when he is truly with his people in the complete, undeniable, and uninhibited sense as he was in the beginning and will be in the end. Amen. That is the story of the Bible. Okay. That was the Bible stuff. You guys all right? Still good? Now, we talk quite a bit about Jesus being with us. If you've been around the church for a minute or two, you've likely noticed that people who follow Jesus believe God is neither distant nor aloof. We talk as if he's actually here. He's with us. In fact, that's one of his names, Emmanuel, God with us. One of the last things that Jesus says before he returns to the Father is, I am with you always, which begs the obvious question, how? I mean, and technically, he's not here physically, clearly. He's not just here symbolically. We don't believe that. We believe it's much more than just a symbol. So how is this reality, the promise of Jesus, which is so precious to his followers down throughout church history, how is that true? And the answer is through the Holy Spirit. God's empowering presence. And in the story of the Bible, God has gone to great lengths to be with his beloved. That's you, by the way. Jesus' promise is true. I am with you always. The problem is that we are not always with him. Because though Jesus is, as he promised, here, we are not always where he is. And that's what I'm getting at with all of this. The first week of this series, we talked about the personhood of the Spirit, which is massively important. God's Spirit, the way He's with us, He's a He, not an it, a person, not a force. And that matters because you can be in relationship with a person. You cannot be in a relationship with an abstract concept or a symbol or a force. Last week, we connected that reality with the truth of the Spirit's power. How did Jesus perform miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, all that crazy stuff? Not by being God. He was and is. But that's not how he did all that. How do we know? Because as the story carries on, his followers continue to do all the same things. And they are very much not God. Maybe the power to do miracles seems to you uh, far-fetched and impractical, and that's totally fine. But this is about more than just miraculous things. This is about God's empowering presence at work in and through you as you work or love or parent or relate to people or find your way in the chaos of life in the world as you live and breathe. If the power that was in Jesus to cast out demons and restore sight to the blind is alive in me, I would very much like to access it just to be a better dad or a husband or an artist or a friend and on down that list. But since the Spirit is a person, not a force, we don't access the Spirit's power in us 
by channeling energy from an abstract force. We're not Jedi or, or I guess, Sith either. We access the power and presence of the Spirit through our relationship with Him by being with the Spirit of Jesus. It's out of this withness that we do all the things that the Spirit does. Now, as this series carries on, we're going to talk about prophecy and healing and miracles and even crazy stuff like tongues. But before we can begin to wrap our minds around how we hear God's voice via the Spirit or how people are healed miraculously via the Spirit or why there's weird stuff like lifting hands and dancing and worship or speaking in tongues or whatever it might be, before we can get to all of that, you have to understand that all the things the Spirit do, does flow from our being with Him. Meaning the more intimacy with God, the more work of the Holy Spirit can flow in and through you. How do we have intimacy with God? Through the Spirit. There are moments in time when being with God seems much easier than others. Maybe during a particular stirring session of worship, or for some of you, that might be it. Or maybe it's just like during quiet, meditative prayer for others of you. Maybe it's in moments of profound joy. Or maybe for many of us, it's in um, the desperation of suffering that God feels really close. Problem is, those times make up the minority of our everyday lives. And I don't want the power of God made manifest in my life held hostage by whether or not worship was awesome or if my week was particularly great or spiritual feeling or joyful. I want the power of the Spirit when I'm sitting working at my desk on an ordinary day. I want the power of the Spirit in conversations with my family over dinner the power of the Spirit when I go watch a movie with my friends, or I want God's closeness in all my life. This is why I think Dallas Willard wrote this, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds, which is, I admit, much easier said than done, but it's not impossible. One noteworthy figure, an extreme example of this, who pursued this in an inspiring way is the medieval monk Brother Lawrence, who I've talked about a few times. He found a way to experience God's withness in his ordinary rhythms of washing dishes in a monastery. And he wrote this in his journal. For me, the time of business, the, the busyness of washing dishes in a Paris monastery, does not differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clutter of my kitchen, I possessed God in the same great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. So, to end, I realize we're retreading what is now familiar ground for many of you that have been here a while, but this is crucial stuff. If you want the person and the power of God's Spirit, you must have His presence. So, if I may, let me offer a handful of suggested practices to begin or to continue with this. The first is the most obvious one you've all heard before, which is begin the day by being with God. As predictable and ordinary as that sounds, there's a reason that Jesus was big on the whole prayer in the morning thing. I have conducted my life in ongoing stretches both with and without spending my mornings with God. And for me personally, the difference between the two is indisputable. I have my time uh, after I wake up. I have breakfast with the kids, coffee with Abby. I drop back off at school. And then I head to my office with more coffee, <laughs> shut, shut the door, sit down, take a deep breath, slow down for a second and say, 
Good morning, Jesus. And I sit and I wait and I listen and I think about, concentrate on God's closeness, like Willard wrote, keep God before my mind. I open a journal, I write what I think God might be saying and how I feel that morning before God. Then I go on with the rest of it. I read my Bible, I pray, other spiritual disciplines depending on the day or season. Your approach doesn't have to look like that at all. It doesn't even have to seem as involved if you're new to this or if you're getting back into it after time away. Get up 10 minutes earlier than usual. 10 minutes is totally manageable, by the way. It's an insignificant amount of time. Find just a small window of quiet to stop and say, good morning, God. Anything to say before the day begins? 10 minutes. But don't stop with the mornings. Create rhythms. I've also uh, begun to keep a second, am I, yeah, a second smaller journal that I can keep in my pocket, and my watch beeps every day at 1 p.m. I stand up from whatever it is that I'm doing, um, and I take a short walk. I sit down somewhere, and I take a deep breath and say, good afternoon, Jesus. Is there anything that you want to say? And I write in my book again, I wait and listen, if not only for a few minutes, 10, 15 minutes, and then I head back to whatever it was I was doing. I write things down again. I might reference those throughout the day, or I might not. And then finally, one more time, I do the same thing in the darkness of my room, in bed, before I fall asleep, only I don't write anything down on account of I can't see in the dark and all that. Um, these last few months, though, God has been doing this new work in me and stirring something in me, and, and I've been drawn to him in a new way. And what I found is that these times, though this is, I've done this before in different seasons of my discipleship, these times aren't always as profound for me as they sound for Brother Lawrence. The more I embrace these rhythms, the more I feel myself stretching comfortably into the spaces between them. What I mean is that I find myself praying, not just when I get up and have the specific time for it, I find myself praying on the walk home after I take my kid to school. And I think the reason why is that I'm becoming more aware of God's ongoing presence in and around me. I find myself recalling something that God said at 1 p.m. when I took out my journal while I'm brushing my teeth before bed, and I say, oh, right, that he did say that. And I remember that that means he's with me. That means he's here. And I'll talk to him again, even for just a moment. When I pray over my kids before they sleep, I'm telling them what I think God has to say about them from those times earlier in the day. Now, I want to be someone who is, like Brother Lawrence, always in two places at one time, on a walk and with God, at the movies with my friends, having a great time, and with God, laughing with my wife, Abby, and with God. And don't get me wrong, I am in no way comparing myself to Brother Lawrence or Dallas Willard, but I'm saying that in my experience, the withness that Jesus promised is readily available, but it's not coerced, because God doesn't work that way. And it doesn't take a monastery or 40 days of fasting to find it. It's here, now. It's in you. You don't need a mountain anymore. You don't need a temple anymore. That same powerful, sacred presence is in your kitchen while you wash dishes or on your couch after a long day or on a sidewalk as you walk down Main Street. It's even between the pages of book you're reading at the time, or it's on your commute in traffic, or it's in conversation over dinner. That presence is with you, available to you. You have access 
to the empowering presence of God himself in you. And the more we find it, the more we find the person and the power of that same spirit in our lives and available as we act in the world around us. When that same presence bleeds over into more than just a prayer walk in the morning, but words from God for you and other people in the middle of the day, or into healing in your life and the people over whom you pray, or in confidence to step out and risk, emboldened by the felt presence of God in the Spirit over dozens and dozens of small conversations in mornings and afternoons and evenings. Good morning, God. Anything to say? A few years ago when we wrote Holy Spirit on the whiteboard of hypothetical values for this hypothetical church that we would go on to plant, that was our dream, and that's honestly what we talked about. That was our prayer that morning, that we would become, whatever this church ended up being, we would become a family who realized what we have, God with us in the Holy Spirit. So let me pray and ask that it would be so. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.